today. Praise God. We've had a wonderful time of worship already. And just before we read the passage, I want to pray this morning from this beautiful little book of prayers that I've been uh, praying recently called The Valley of Vision, which are a, a collection of prayers from the Puritans, so 16th, 17th centuries. Uh, so the language is kind of old, but they're so beautiful, they're so rich. And I want to pray a prayer here for the Lord's Day um, as we begin the talk this morning. So just close your eyes and join with me uh, in this prayer. I'm not going to read the whole, all, not going to read all of it, just the first little part here. Oh Lord, my Lord, this is thy day, the heavenly ordinance of rest, the open door of worship, the record of Jesus' resurrection the seal of the Sabbath to come, the day when saints militant and triumphant unite in endless song. I bless thee for thy throne of grace, that here free favor reigns, that open access to it through the blood of Jesus, that the veil is torn aside and I can enter the holiest and find thee ready to hear, waiting to be gracious, inviting me to pour out my needs, encouraging my desires, promising to give more than I ask or think. But while I bless thee, shame and confusion are mine. I remember my past misuse of sacred things, my irreverent worship, my base ingratitude, my cold, dull praise. Sprinkle all my past Sabbaths with thy cleansing blood, Lord Jesus, and may this day witness deep improvement in me. Give me rich abundance the blessings the Lord's day was designed to impart. In Jesus' name, amen. What a beautiful prayer. Friends, it's good to be with you. Praise God for our, uh, opportun this opportunity to gather and hear God's word. Let me read from Philippians chapter three. I'm gonna start in verse seven, which just gives us a bit of context, just kind of building on what Linda preached from last week, uh, but our reading, for today starts at verse 10, but I'm gonna start in verse seven, where Paul writes, and remember he's writing from prison in, in Philip, uh, sorry, in Rome most likely, not sure if today or the next day or the day after that is gonna mean that he will be executed. He is at the mercy of the powers and yet he knows that the truth is for him that he is held by the power which holds all things. And so he can write, whatever were gains to me, verse seven, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Does anyone know what that's called? That is called justification. We're justified by faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and, the, and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on in order to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. 
Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What do we call this, this straining forward to what is ahead? We call this sanctification. So Paul has been justified by faith. Now he's straining forward to all that Christ has for him. That's sanctification, wanting to be conformed to the will of Jesus. And then Paul writes, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already obtained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is in their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that it will be like his glorious body. What do we call that? Glorification. We have justification, sanctification, glorification, the three modes of salvation that we understand uh, as through the teaching of Paul that will be part of the pattern for all of us. But let's pray as we uh, dig into this reading together in Jesus' name. I ask, Lord, that you will add your wisdom, your understanding, your power to this reading in order that we might not only hear it, but take it into our hearts and become doers of the word also. Lord Jesus, we want to pause just for a moment. Take a deep breath. Recognize your presence here among us. Recognize that you are calling each of us to this life, this life of faith, this life of uh, pressing on, this life of promise that our citizenship is in heaven. Come, Holy Spirit, and lead us into all truth. Just take a moment, every one of you here this morning, pause and let the Spirit settle your mind, settle your heart, so that you can tune in to His voice. Bless you, Lord Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Now, there is an uncomfortable truth about life in church that we preachers don't like to admit very often, but one which all of you will know very, very well, I am sure, which is that people rarely remember what we preach. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. We put in the work, study, prayer, writing, we come with a word from the Lord to we preach our hearts out, and then by Monday morning, or if we're honest, maybe by Sunday lunch, much of it is forgotten. Now, I don't think that takes away from the importance of preaching, because, friends, there is so much more going on here in this moment than simply what you will retain in your memory. Are you with me? The Spirit of God is speaking. Sometimes that bypasses our brains. Sometimes we don't remember everything that we've heard. 
but that doesn't mean that God is not at work. Um, however, it is a little bit disheartening, and it has happened to me a few times, when I've preached what I thought was just a cracker of a sermon, right? <laughs> and then someone will come up to me after the service and say, hey, that was a great sermon. What was the passage you were preaching on again? <laughs> or occasionally, if you don't know, say goodbye, especially the older folks at the door shaking hands, and they'll say, that was a very interesting sermon today, Pastor which I think was code for, I have honestly no idea what you were talking about, but at least we survived, right? And that's a better track record than Paul, because during one of his sermons, someone actually fell asleep, fell out of the window, and died. You can read about that in the book of Acts. Now, Paul did go and then raise the guy from the dead, and none of that has happened to me yet. However, I will keep on preaching the good news. Why? Because I believe it is the power of God for salvation. So I'm fine, really. No, I'm fine, honestly, I'm okay. Now, with that in mind, I imagine, however, that there are a few sermons that you've heard in your life that have, in fact, been totally life-changing. There's a few sermons I'm sure all of you could say I remember very, very well because I know that in that moment the Lord was speaking to me. Now, it might only be 10 or 5 or even 1. Show of hands. Did anyone say, you know, I've, there's probably 10 sermons in my life that I remember really well. There's a couple of people. Five? <laughs> All right, so this is the moment of truth here. One. Yeah, come on, everyone's got to say one. Even if it was really bad and you hope you never have to go through that again. Okay. <laughs> now, today, however, I'm praying will be one of those days for you. And if not for you maybe someone else in this room, right? Because it's not just about what's happening for me in this moment or for you in this moment, it's what God is doing among us. So you just never know what the Lord may do in your life or someone else's life here in this room as we hear the Word of God preached today. So pray for that, believe for that, trust in the Lord for it. God is here and He is speaking. Amen? Now, this passage that we just read is actually one of those for me. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I went off to Bible college you know, just after high school, and I went really just to take a gap year to deepen my faith, uh, strengthen my discipleship. It had just come after I'd had a significant encounter with Jesus, and I wasn't thinking at that point at all about becoming a pastor. That was the last thing on my mind. I just wanted to grow as a Christian. I just wanted to deepen my faith. I was taking this seriously. God had encountered me, and I wanted to take this life of faith seriously. But it wasn't an easy decision. I was wrestling with it because it meant putting some other plans on hold. Uh, I'd been accepted into a university course that was quite difficult to get into, and there was a threat that if I deferred that uh, entrance, I wouldn't be able to get back into it. So I was feeling quite torn about the whole thing, and I was asking God to speak to me about it. So I'd written away to a few colleges for their prospectus packs, enrollment information, and one of them sent me the forms along with a recording of a sermon on a cassette tape, if you can believe it, I remember putting that thing in the lounge room, sitting on the floor, listening to the sermon. So it was a sermon from uh, Philippians 3, 12 to 21. And as I was listening to that sermon, I can honestly say it changed my life. And I played it over and over and over again, trying to soak in as much of it as I could. And I heard God speak to me so clearly through this passage. And what he said to me was that the most important thing I could do with my life regardless of what it might cost me, 
The most important thing I could do with my life, more important than literally, literally anything else, is to follow what Paul says here in Philippians 3, 12 to 14. Let's just read it again. I think it's on the screen. 12 to 14. Not that I have already obtained all this or am already perfected, but I press on to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus lay hold of me. I knew that Jesus had laid hold of me, and I wanted nothing more than to lay hold of that for which he had laid hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on. Like this is active, aggressive language here. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So the Lord was speaking to me in this moment, Tim, will you make this your one thing as well? Will you make this your life's purpose, this one thing that you will live for to take hold of that for which I have taken hold of you? Will you press forward to win the goal for the prize for which the Father has called you in my name? And my spirit was saying, yes, that's what I want, but I had to make a very difficult decision. Now, these are rare and precious experiences in our discipleship. You know what it feels like? Everything you are, everything you believe, everything you have, everything you desire is compressed down into a moment of decision, a moment of choice, which you know will radically change your life. You're not sure where it's going to lead you, but you know this is a significant moment. It's going to change my life. It's going to alter the direction I thought I was headed in, and it's slightly terrifying. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Have you ever had one of those moments? Maybe it's only ever been once or twice. You know, some of the greatest saints in church history only ever have one of these experiences in their whole life, or maybe two. This is not meant to be a common thing. This is something where in a moment, God will grab hold of you and say, listen, this is important. The rest of your life depends on this decision. Now, thank God for his grace. We all screw up, we all make mistakes, we all stumble, we all struggle. You know, this is not a question of salvation, right? I was already a believer. This was about whether I was going to invest my life into this, whether I was going to mean it. And I knew that to accept the call would to be to put my life at the disposal of Jesus. And again, as I said, I had no idea where that would lead, but I knew that to deny it or to reject it would be catastrophic catastrophic. It would be choosing to live a lie. Anyone prepared to sort of raise their hand for a moment and say, yeah, I've been there. I know what that's like. Anyone? So the question I want to ask you, if you have been in that place before, are you still living then in accordance with what God has given you, what God has called you to pursue? As Paul says in verse 16, let us live up to what we have already attained. Let us live it in accordance with what God has already given us, with the measure of our faith. Now, as I said, it's not about being perfect. And I take so much comfort here from what Paul says in this passage. You know, this is the Apostle Paul, friends. This is, this is Paul the Apostle who has achieved so much for Jesus 
already, planted churches, preached the gospel, suffered greatly for, for Christ. He has seen hundreds, I don't know, thousands of people come to faith through his ministry. He's seen people raised from the dead. He's seen people healed. He has seen God work powerfully in all kinds of ways that we could only probably dream about. And here he is in prison and he's saying toward the end of his life, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. So that is good news. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul, for being so honest in your letters because it enables us to have the same kind of faith because we know that we often experience the same things that you did. It's one of, actually, I read this recently. One of the key things that we need to do when we read the scriptures is not imagine that these people are just, you know, fantasy stories, characters from a book, but are actually real people who experience the same kinds of emotions that we do. It's really important that we understand that, that when we read about Paul, when we read about Job, when we read about Moses and David, they're not just characters from a book. They were real people who experienced life as we do with the same fears, the same doubts, the same struggles, the same emotions. And so if, if God can intervene in their circumstances and help them to overcome, many of whom encountered stuff that is way worse than we ever will, then we can have faith. We can know that God is with us, that we don't have to give in, uh, and that if we have struggled, if we have stumbled, if we have made mistakes, if we have walked away from what God has called us to, there is grace, there is mercy. Your sin is not greater than God's mercy. No sin is greater than God's mercy, friends. You might feel like it is. Today you were coming into church, maybe you felt like, I am such a failure, I have made so many mistakes, I have no faith, I have so many doubts, I, I don't even know if I can worship, how can I sing these songs with integrity? Friends, there is no sin that is greater than the grace of God. Can I get an amen to that? So if that's how you feel, don't be afraid. Confess your sins, yes, but trust that you have a good Father who loves you and who will forgive you and restore you. So maybe today uh, you're here and you're feeling cold-hearted. Maybe you've lost your passion for God. Maybe you're struggling with doubts, with sins. Maybe you've grown tired and burned out on religion. Maybe you feel really disappointed with God. Maybe you feel like your faith, which was once like everything to you, is now just something that you're trying to fit in to everything else that you've got going on, right? So having these encounters with God, these kind of like Damascus Road moments, don't guarantee that we'll stick with it. I think a lot of people expect that if I can just have one dramatic experience of God's presence and power, it will give me everything I need to overcome. That's just not the truth. Yes, it will help you. Obviously, it helps. It's important. It's significant. But we don't live from that moment. We then have to press on, as Paul says. He's had this experience. He knows the power and the grace of God. He has walked with Jesus. But most of that walking with Jesus, I am sure, has just felt like obedience. And because that's what we're called to, friends. Um, what we're called to, we're justified by faith, yes, but we are sanctified by obedience. Obedience. Sanctification is the process of change that happens in us over a lifetime. The slow process of God's grace working into our hard hearts and our broken places and our sinfulness 
over many, many, many years. Oftentimes, you don't even notice it's going on. Uh, but I, was hearing a, I was listening to a sermon the other day, and uh, the preacher was talking about how he's often just so amazed when he meets saints who've walked with Jesus, and they're in their 80s or their 90s, and many of them were Christians before he was even born. And uh, it, I think this is so true. You sense in many of these people who have, in fact, dedicated themselves to a life of obedience to Jesus, a deep, deep well of hope and faith and joy that is unshakable. And friends, that does not come by God just snapping his fingers and, in, and depositing that in you. That comes by stinking hard work over many, many years, walking with Jesus in obedience, trusting in his goodness, trusting in his mercy, through the ups and downs, through the, the hard days and the good days, when there's tragedy, when there's joy, keeping your eyes on Jesus. Eyes on Jesus, however, he will give us the strength to run this race with endurance to the end, and when we get toward those later years in our life, we will know that it was worth it because we'll have had an investment in us, a foundation in us in Christ that is unshakable, and that will lead then us to our glorification. Amen. So Paul says, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining forward to what is ahead, in order to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me. Now, Jesus said something really curious in Matthew 11. I think I have this on the screen. Matthew 11. Uh, Jesus said this, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful people or literally violent people, lay hold of it. Now, what does Jesus mean? It's an odd thing to say. Again, it's probably not one of the ones you have as a life verse on your mirror, but it's a really interesting one, and I think it connects with what Paul is saying here in Philippians 3. The kingdom of heaven is advancing. It is moving. That does not depend on us. The kingdom of God is forcefully advancing. It will not be stopped. Amen? It will not be stopped because Jesus is the king and he is in charge of his kingdom. And so he will bring, as Paul says in Philippians 3, by his own power, all things under his control. That is the truth. Our response, however, is to be forceful people who will, with passion and with devotion and with energy, lay hold of it. The kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing and forceful people lay hold of it. In other words, this is not a passive position to take. It's an active position. It's an aggressive position. It's a determined position that I will lay hold of the kingdom of God and I will go where it is going. And I think that's what we see here in Paul's prayer from prison. It's interesting. Not that I've already obtained, already, but I press on. He may be at the end of his life, but he's still determined to press on to make every day count. One thing I do, he says, one thing. So friends, what is your one thing? I think we all have one thing that we're aiming for in our lives if we get right down to the bottom of what motivates us. One thing that we desire above everything else. See, desire is not the problem. We've talked about this before. Desire is, in fact, at the heart of all spirituality. The question is what we do with our desire. Or to put it differently, what do we do with what we love? What is it that you most deeply love? What is it that you most deeply desire? What's that one thing that you most deeply 
desire in your life. Maybe it's for money. Maybe it's feeling like you need to be in control. And we all feel a bit out of control right now. We just look at what's happening in the market, in the economy, with a potential recession, interest rates going up. I get it. People are afraid of what might happen in the future, in the immediate future. What is happening right now? We look at what's going on around the world. It is very tempting to want to try to carve out a little piece of the world where we are in control, isn't it? Or maybe it's trying to make up for some mistake you made in the past, or it's career advancement, or it's family, a relationship, finding love that you never felt from your parents. Whatever it is, friends, I don't deny how powerful and intoxicating many of those desires are. But we have to decide as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, as students of Jesus, that the one thing, the one thing that we will desire above everything else is the kingdom of God and its king. The kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing. Forceful people lay hold of it. This is what we're called to. As Jesus promised, if we do that, if we seek first the kingdom, if we make that our highest priority, then he'll provide us with everything we need to do what it is that we've been called to do. Doesn't promise to provide us everything that we want, because sometimes the things that we want will destroy us. Are you with me? It's a good thing that God has not answered many of my prayers. And it's a good thing for you that God has not answered many of my prayers. God listens, he hears us, sometimes his answer is no, that is a terrible prayer. (laughs) That's okay, he's gracious. Sometimes if we got everything that we wanted, we know that that would destroy our lives, but God does promise to give us everything that we need. And we have a very difficult time in our culture discerning the difference between what we want and what we need, don't we? Um, (laughs) And we don't need to fear, as Linda was saying last week, that if we do this, it will be a net loss to us, right? Uh, Instead, we need to have the same attitude that Paul had in verse 7, whatever were gains to me, whatever I had in my previous life, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. The question that I want to ask you this morning, if I can bring this down into one question, one statement, my question to you is this, is Jesus still of surpassing worth to you? Is knowing Jesus as your Lord still of surpassing worth to you? In other words, does it mean more to you? Is it worth more to you than everything else in your life? Surpassing worth means it is the thing of the most worth that you have. Is that still what you think when you think about Jesus, when you think about your faith? Now, maybe it isn't, and that's okay. If it's not, It's a good day to be honest with God and honest with yourself and say, Lord, I am really struggling to follow you. But as we know, you 
you can't be kind of half in the kingdom. As Jesus says in Matthew 11, it's forcefully advancing, forceful people lay hold of it. You can't be lukewarm, but it's okay to admit that's how you feel. And by the way, the depth of our faith is never determined by how we feel. Amen? So you may be having these struggles. It doesn't mean that you've lost your faith in Jesus, but it does mean that maybe there are other things in your life that have become, of more, become more important to you, that have become of greater worth to you than knowing Christ Jesus as your Lord, as your Lord. The other day I was chatting with my son about some of his sports heroes while we were driving in the car, probably to school, or maybe to, maybe to basketball training, I don't know. We mentioned a few of them. There's one in particular I won't name, I'm sure you'll all figure out who I'm talking about. We were discussing someone who was just legendary on the basketball court, right? Arguably the best ball player that has ever lived. But otherwise known, as we've come to realize fairly recently, as a really horrible person. Selfish, aggressive, mean-spirited, vindictive. So focused on his own success that he didn't really care, as it turns out, who he hurt along the way. So I asked my son, does that, does that sound like a good thing to you? Does that sound like a good thing? Okay, he was extremely wealthy, extremely successful. He was a celebrity, and he, yet he sacrificed everything to get those things. His friends, his family, his whole life in order to be the best basketball player ever. So I asked my son, I wonder what it's like for him now that he can no longer play when the thing that you've given your life to for so many years is suddenly taken away, either from injury or, you know, in this case, just from retirement. That was everything to him. How do you think he feels now that he can't do it anymore, right? Do you think it was worth it? And we both agreed that it probably wasn't. Now, friends, what does the Bible call that attitude to life, where you make this one thing the object of your affection, your desire, the thing you seek after more than anything else? The Bible calls that idolatry. And so this player made an idol out of success. He made that his one thing. And yes, he got it, but he lost so much more in the process. And so here's the thing about idols, friends, on the screen. In the beginning, they promised you everything and cost you almost nothing. But in the end, they cost you everything and they give you almost nothing in return. Nothing of value in the end. And that's why they're so dangerous, right? That's why we're warned over and over and again in the scriptures not to worship them. The reason is not because God wants to spoil our fun, wants to make our lives a misery, the reason is because God is good and kind and he doesn't want us to destroy our lives, right? He warns us not to worship idols because they destroy us in the end. As Jesus said, what will it profit you if you gain the whole world yet lose your soul? So friends, what is your one thing? Now, I'm not saying at all that you can't love or desire things other than Jesus. Of course we can. Just go back to the beginning in creation. Genesis chapter 1, we read that it was not good for the human being, the Adam, to be alone, right? Think about that. He has everything. He's got the whole world and he's got God just to himself and that was not good enough. It wasn't good for him to be alone, even with God. 
He needed some other things in his life in order to be fulfilled. So the scriptures are very honest about this with us. It's not just me and Jesus and everyone else can just go away. That's all I need. No, that's not true. What we need is Jesus and the things that make life worth living. So God gives us relationship with others. He gives us fruitful work. He gives us the, you know, the, he invites us to enjoy our achievements, to pursue friendship, you know, to pursue creativity, to have a family, to build a meaningful career. Like all of those things are good. They are good and they're very good, right? But they can't be the good thing or as Tim Keller puts it, the ultimate thing. If you make any one of those good things the ultimate thing, that good thing will destroy you. It becomes an idol and it becomes inflamed by you know, demonic power and it destroys you. So we can't make any of those good things ultimate things, but we can make them good things and enjoy them as good things. The question is, we need to make sure that we've rightly ordered our desires, that our desire for God is first and foremost above everything else, and then all the other things that define who we are and what we're about come into their rightful place under his lordship. As St. Augustine said in the fourth century, uh, he called, called this having rightly ordered loves, rightly ordered desires, which he believed was the secret to our happiness, a secret to a peaceful inner life, to a flourishing soul, is to make sure that we have properly ordered desires. In fact, he put it like this. I love this. Um, this is one you could get, you know, make your life verse, although it's not scripture. Love God and do whatever you like. Love God and do whatever you like. If we love God, then what we like to do will become properly ordered under his love over time. And that's the process of sanctification. We put our love for God first and his love for us as the most important thing. All these other things will find their rightful place. We don't have to stress about it, right? We all struggle with sin, amen. But we don't have to stress about it if we just make the pursuit of Jesus the most important thing to us then all these other things will find their rightful place in the end. It's when we kind of turn inward and we obsess about all the things that are wrong with us that we, we move away from the, the love and grace of God and we try to fix this stuff on our own and it just becomes destructive. If we just keep our eyes on Jesus, uh, as we're told in the, in the book of Hebrews, keep your eyes on Jesus because he is the author and the perfecter of your faith. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He is the author and the perfecter of your faith. He will help you to get this stuff sorted out. Amen. And we know this is true because Jesus says that to love him is to obey him. If you love me, he says in John 15, you will keep my commands. It's not this will be a great burden to you. If you love me, your desire your rightly ordered desires will come into alignment and you will do what I command. I think that's beautiful. The Spirit of God is leading us, is working in us. We don't have to figure all this stuff out for ourselves. He's been given to us because God knows we can't figure this stuff out. We can't order our souls. We can't make this stuff happen. But as we, as we focus on Jesus and we focus on being obedient to Him, 
the Spirit of God will be at work in our lives, oftentimes quietly and imperceptibly, reordering what is going on inside us, this chaos that's often swirling around in so many people, in their soul, in their mind, in their heart. The Spirit of God comes just like He did at creation and begins to move over the surface of that chaos and bring order and life and flourishing and shalom. That is the promise of life in the kingdom of God. But we do have to make that decision to lay hold of it, not to be passive, not to step back and go, oh, well, since it's all up to God, he'll do it. No, I have to take that active position that I press on in order that I may lay hold of all that Christ lay hold of me for. The only reason I can lay hold of anything in his name is because he first laid hold of me. The only reason I can love like he does is because he first loved me. All of this comes from God initially. My response is simply just to be a faithful and obedient disciple, energized, empowered, strengthened, encouraged by his love and mercy and grace and affection. And I have run out of time I'm about halfway through my sermon notes, so amazing. <laughs> but I think, you know, that's probably all I need to say this morning. Let me just finish with 18 verse, verses 18 to 21. Uh, or actually, before we do that, I love what Paul says here in verse 15. This is awesome. I don't know whether he was actually being funny here uh, or it just comes across that way. But in verse 15, he says, you know, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of these things, and if on some point you think differently, well, that too God will make clear to you. In other words, I know I'm right, and you're wrong if you think differently about this, but it's okay because God's going to show you that I'm right in the end, okay? God too will make clear. In other words, but this is actually very encouraging, even if we don't have all this figured out, even if we're not sure if we're a mature disciple, right? even if we're not sure that we take this view of things. Maybe we do think very differently. God is at work in your life, in my life, and he is faithful, and he is leading us. And that means that if we are honest and we want to live a life of integrity as disciples, God will sort this stuff out for us as we go. Isn't that beautiful? I feel like this morning, what the Spirit of God is trying to say to us is just, church, relax for a minute. Yes, we are called to this kind of position of, of active, forceful faith, right? It's, it's, let's make that decision to be men and women who pursue the things of God. But at the same time, there's a kind of peaceful, relaxed posture that we take in that activity where we know that we can't produce this stuff. Yes, we say yes and amen, I want to follow you, Jesus, but I know that from this point on, as I walk with you, the stuff that I, is totally out of my control, that's up to you. I can relax. I can let you lead me. I can trust in your provision. I can trust in your goodness. Uh, your mercies in you every morning. I can rest in your presence and let you carry me along. Isn't that awesome? So church, maybe what you need to hear this morning is just stop trying so hard to make this stuff work in your life, take a deep breath, rest in the goodness of God, and trust that as you walk with Him, He will sort this stuff out in you. I've been in lots of different church environments over the years, some healthy, some very unhealthy. 
Probably the most damaging stuff, though, is when you enter into environments where it's just guilt and judgment and it's all on you and you've got to do this and if you don't you're a bad Christian if you struggle you're a bad Christian like there's this heaviness this weight that you're carrying around that is religion Jesus came to set us free from that not so that we just coast but so that in our faith and in our desire to be faithful we can trust that he is good and he is leading us and the spirit as Jesus promised will lead us into all truth. What did Jesus say? I've not left you as orphans to figure this stuff out on your own. I am with you. I'm sending the Spirit to you. He will be your comforter. Yeah, he'll convict you of sin, but conviction of sin is such a completely different kind of experience to judgment. You know what I'm saying? When the Spirit convicts you, it's like, oh, I can't need to deal with this because this is stopping me from entering into the life that Jesus is calling me to. Judgment is, you're a terrible person, you should just give up right now. That is not the voice of the Holy Spirit. Spirit comes, we've not been left as orphans, He's leading us into all truth, He's comforting us, He's convicting us, He's strengthening us, He gives us gifts, and He produces fruit, and this is beautiful, this is life in the kingdom. So friends, close your eyes with me for just a moment. Take a deep breath. Breathe in the presence of the Holy Spirit and let him minister to you right now. Let him minister to you right now. you're really struggling with your faith right now, just be honest with God about that. Just say, God, I'm really finding it hard to trust you. I feel so disappointed. I feel angry. Maybe you're grieving today. and You just need to know that God is with you. And you'll get through this. Maybe you're worried about the future. I pray the Spirit will just comfort you right now. Remind you that we are citizens of heaven. You don't need to be afraid. Maybe you've been on the fence about following Jesus. Not really sure if you want to go all the way in. Just pray this morning the Lord will, will, will help you to make that decision. That he'll show you that he's good, and that he loves you, and he's not trying to do this to ruin your life, but to give you life. Maybe it's just been a long time since you've heard the voice of the Lord, or you've felt his presence, and you feel dry. Let's pray right now, the Holy Spirit will move over your life like streams of living water in the desert. Come, Holy Spirit. Maybe you know that your desires are completely disordered right now. They're completely out of whack. You're pursuing things that you know are going to destroy you, but you don't know how to get out of it. I pray right now in the name of Jesus, the Spirit will give you power 
to overcome, to break that addiction, to step back from that temptation, to recognize that that thing you're pursuing is not good for you and that there is another way. I pray right now that the Holy Spirit will help you in his power to put the love of Jesus first in your life. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you. Lord, it's so good to be in your presence and to enjoy your word and to be reminded of who we are. Our, our God is not our stomach, our bellies. We're not on the pathway to destruction. We are citizens of heaven. And so, Lord, I pray that each and every one of us will take hold of that identity, take hold of that status, and press forward into all the good things that you have in mind for every person in this room. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. As they do, I really do encourage you to come to our Ash Wednesday service. It's a beautiful, simple service of of confession and repentance, really, and we'll take communion together. And to set aside this season of Lent as a season to pursue God. Put aside something that is time-consuming. The reason we fast is not to prove something to God about how spiritual we are. We fast from things that take time. Food preparation in the ancient world took a lot of time, so people would fast from food for a season to create space in their life in order to pray and seek the Lord. So that's what I think we should do. If there's something in your life that you can put aside, uh, maybe it's social media, maybe it's a television program that you watch each week, uh, put that aside just for this season of Lent and use that time to pursue God. That's what it's about. Create space in your life to make room for God. So with that, I'm going to leave you. God bless. And we're going to sing one final song.